You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello to the herd. For the next two months, Unbiased Science is conducting a listener survey to help us get to know you, your interests, and what you think of the show. Please support the podcast by taking the short questionnaire at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback will help us improve Unbiased Science and the sponsors that connect with you. Plus, as a way of saying thank you, you will be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Again, that's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. I am a scientist. Yeah, I am a scientist. Yeah, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We are your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are doing things a little bit differently. We're taking a step back to sort of refresh your memory um, about what we do, our lives as scientists, and some of the things that we wish people knew about science and scientists. So just a quick note, we were going to tackle a different topic this week. Uh, We were going to talk about endocrine disruptors, which is a question that we get all the time. But we wanted to really do our due diligence and we felt like we weren't ready to record that episode yet. So you will get that episode soon, we promise. Just not yet. If you did not tune into last week's episode, definitely check that out. We talked about the carnivore diet. Um, and boy, did we get a lot of angry DMs about, um, about the episode. Um, but we talk about the dangers of the carnivore diet, things like the total lack of fiber, um, worries about LDL and high cholesterol, and all kinds of good stuff. So definitely go back and check that out if you have not already tuned in. And we will be covering fiber in more detail, specifically that topic and gastrointestinal health. So um, stay tuned for that. I didn't realize, just total aside, that that there was not just total agreement or just acceptance that humans need fiber. I thought this was just like a common knowledge, but I guess even <laughs> that is controversial. Who knew? I also just wanted to to let you all know that I am recording from my kid's room today. I'm sorry for any background noise. If you hear my dogs or vacuuming or anything, there's a lot going on in my house right now. So I'm about six inches off of the floor and I have like Minecraft Legos all over the place. (laughs) I don't know what you're going to see in the background, but just wanted to give that disclaimer. All right. So Andrea, let's, let's get into things. So, um, you know, I, I'm a public health scientist and you are an immunologist and microbiologist. And I feel like people don't really know what that means or understand what our day-to-day lives look like. So do you want to kick things off and sort of talk about your career, your, you know, your, your day-to-day operations as an immunologist? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so, you know, there are a lot of different kind of career paths that one can take with a degree in immunology and microbiology. So I specialized during my doctoral work, I specialized in infectious disease immunology. So basically, I was looking to better understand, you know, how the immune system responds to infection with pathogens, obviously focused on human pathogens, but there's a lot of infectious disease immunology that focuses on, you know, other other animal pathogens or um, zoonotic diseases, which 
the vast majority of, of illnesses are. And so I actually did study zoonotic diseases. So I focused on Lyme disease, which is a bacterial infection that um, is actually even more unique than most enzootic diseases because it has a vector in the midst of all that. So it has to be transmitted um, from an infected tick and the tick will impe- pick up the bacteria from some other animal that it, that was infected. And it kind of creates what we call the enzootic cycle, which is kind of this constant recycling of the bacteria from within a tick into a mammal or a bird or a reptile back into a tick and so on and so forth indefinitely. So, you know, I previously worked in academic research, so within uh, a medical university system, um, but I decided to leave academia for a variety of reasons. So now I work in what we call industry. So industry is a really broad catch-all, right? Industry could be commercial products. Industry could be in medical devices. Industry could be in biopharmaceuticals or pharmaceuticals. And so I actually work in the biotechnology industry. And so biotechnology is basically the development of technology for biological or biomedical research. And that's really where I work. So I work within a biotechnology company that develop assays and assay technologies to conduct research in a variety of fields. In my case, this is assay technologies that are used in cancer research, in cell and gene therapy research, in vaccine research and development, um, in stem cell biology, but even in basic sciences. So I basically hold a space for anyone that's doing any sort of what we call cell-based assays. And so these are experiments that are utilizing cells. So those could be animal cells. They could be human cells or patient cells. They could be tissue biopsies, as I mentioned. They could also be cell lines. But anybody that's working with any sort of organismal cells. And that could be, again, human, animal, could even be plant cells. It could be fungal cells. We obviously also work with bacteria and viruses. And what you're going to do in industry is going to depend on the company and the technology you're working with. So my field is really focused on the development uh, and understanding of these sorts of treatments. Um, So as I mentioned, vaccine research has been a really heavy focus. Um, Cell and gene therapy, which is really an emerging and growing field for a lot of different disease states. So cell and gene therapy we're seeing for cancer treatments, but they're also utilizing and studying this for things like autoimmune disorders, um, infectious diseases, even um, other genetic disorders like neurodegenerative diseases, as well as musculoskeletal diseases. And so it's it's really broad. It requires me to be constantly learning um, because when you're in academia, you often sit in this very tight niche of study. and you're super, super, super expert on this very one specific detail. Um, and in industry, you often have a much broader scope. So, you know, few a few of the recent projects that I've worked on and, and publications that I've been an author on, um, we were looking at CAR-T, which is a particular type of engineered T-cell that we can basically utilize a patient's own immune system to to treat a disease. Um, So I published one paper for CAR-T immunotherapy in the context of HIV infection, so in the context of virology. Um, I also recently published a paper with utilizing CAR-T therapy for solid tumors. So in in this case, we were looking at pancreatic and breast cancers. But I've also done some more traditional chemotherapeutic studies, so looking at drug screening for solid tumors. And again, in this context, we were looking at breast cancer. But also, we've done a lot of COVID products. So we've collaborated with a lot of those big players that um, I'm sure many of you have 
heard about in the context of both COVID drug screens. So looking at uh, monoclonal antibody therapies for COVID treatments, drug treatments for COVID. Um, Initially in the pandemic, we were doing what we call brute force screens, where you're taking existing medications and seeing if they're effective against this new virus. Um, But of course, a lot of the vaccine um, research and development as well. In addition to all of that, um, I've been with my company for almost nine years, and so I've worn many hats over the years. Um, And so now I am also a team lead, so I'm the director of one of our North America teams, which means that I also manage a group of people, which means I'm often in a lot of meetings, I'm figuring out problem solves for a variety of different things, both externally with some of our clients, but also internally with different arms within the company. I do a lot of training. I also am involved in hiring and interviewing new candidates. I have a lot of openings on my team right now. Um, So, you know, the day-to-day is a lot of science, but it's also a lot of kind of people navigating as well. And I think a lot of people who think of scientists often don't realize that there is a lot of interpersonal and person-to-person interactions as well. She's a real dummy, folks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, and just one other thing. Um, So you're sometimes in the lab, you know, like we see you in your lab coat, you know, microscope doing all that stuff. But then other times you're traveling and you're doing more business, um, you know, oriented type of things. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's that's true, really, of anyone in science. I think often, you know, people forget that there's a lot beyond science than just running an experiment. You know, you're even if you're running an experiment, you're analyzing data after the fact or you're presenting it to somebody. You know, another thing I left out is, you know, we go to conferences, many conferences throughout the year and conference season is ramping up. So a recent publication um, that I was that I was a co-author on was just presented at a conference last month. I didn't attend it, but one of our my co-authors presented it on, on our team's behalf. But we've got a big cancer research conference. We've got a big cell and gene therapy research conference. We've got a big immunology conference. And that's important, of course, for us to present our data, but also for us to learn from other scientists. And that's going to be true in no matter what science field you're in. Um, you know, so it's not just running an experiment. It's communicating. It's, you know, navigating all of the, you know, the logistics, the bureaucracy of an organization, whatever, if that's academic or private or nonprofit or government, there is much more beyond on just I'm doing science today. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk about what I do. And I think it's really interesting to highlight that we're both scientists, but we're a completely different type of scientists, right? Would you say, are you a, a, a bench scientist? Would you, would you, is there? No, or, no. I mean, that's, that's what you would call it. Um, you know, I obviously spend less time at the bench than, than I used to, but, but yeah, bench scientist is kind of a colloquial term for a laboratory scientist. Right. And I do nothing in the lab. I'm a data scientist. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But I also just want to remind folks, we actually did an episode, was it like a year ago at least? I forget. Maybe even two. Yeah. And I forget, the title of the episode was something like, it's like, what is it? Something STEM is an open door. I for, well, Yeah, it was like a frozen lyric that you would know, not me, obviously. It's like <laughs> nothing I've ever known before, STEM is an open door, something like that. Um, but I, yeah. we'll, we'll tag that and, and reshare that, of course. But basically, we talk more about 
our journeys, our education, how we came to, to select the fields that we're in. So we're not going to talk about that on this episode. We've already discussed it. Um, so definitely check that out. So um, yeah, my background, I'm a data scientist. My expertise is in health policy evaluation. So as a public health scientist, and that is such a broad term because public health is such a broad field and you could work in community health, environmental health, health policy, epidemiology, biostatistics. And so I was trained broadly in these different disciplines within public health, but my passion is health policy. Um, so, uh, you know, as a public health scientist, I'm really trained in theories of health behavior. So things like social cognitive theory, trans-theoretical model, health belief model, theory of planned behavior, social ecological model. And so there's a very big focus on the different causes of health outcomes and things that impact our health at different levels. And so, you know, as I said, my expertise is really health policy. Um, so I, for example, read every single word of the Affordable Care Act. My initial impetus for getting into health policy was my father's struggle with emphysema um, as a result of his smoking. So I became very entrenched in smoking-related policies, different, you know, taxation models for cigarettes, things like tobacco warning labels on cigarette packs. And then more broadly, I, I went... Um, you know, I studied like Medicare, Medicaid, different payment models and, and you know, different healthcare systems ac- around the world. So sorry if I'm rambling, but there's, it's just so, it's just so broad. So I started out working for uh, departments of health, again, specifically really in uh, the field of tobacco control. And then just like Andrea, I dabbled in academia. I actually was in clinical academia for, for several years, uh, teaching research methodology to physician assistant clinical students which was really cool and really rewarding. But as Andrea said, and we talk about this on that episode, you know, academia has its pros and cons and it just, it wasn't for me. Um, I really wanted to get out there, uh, you know, and apply my, my skill set. And so anyway, not, not to get into, into the weeds too much, but so I am the CEO of a data science consultancy. And so our expertise is really in designing evaluations of health policies or health programs. So for example, that's my mother calling me. Thank you, mom. Let me turn my ringer off. Sorry, everyone. Um, So for example, um, my company was hired two years ago now by a state Medicaid office to evaluate a comprehensive primary care program. And so basically they implemented this policy and they wanted to know how did it impact the population? So we went in and we designed the evaluation. You know, which outcomes did we want to study? We wanted to look at things like utilization of care, emergency room visits, satisfaction, uh, you know, cost of care, things like that. And so we designed a pre-post evaluation We had to select variables. How are we going to measure impact? What are the other confounding variables that might be impacting outcomes? Can we measure them directly? Do we need proxies for them? And so then after you design the actual evaluation, we collect data. In this particular example, we were using secondary data sources. So the state turned over um, their claims data. We also um, looked at survey data to assess satisfaction. And so we asked 
analyze the data and analyzing the data. It's so interesting. I feel like people always focus on the analysis, but it's actually the design of the study that's almost more important because once you have your data, it's, you know, if, if you're a data scientist, it's intuitive for the most part, you know, which models you're going to apply, you know, and, and methodologies. So, so yeah, you know, then we do things like logistic regression modeling, linear regression modeling, um, or testing different models and all that kind of good stuff. Well, and I think just, you know, you, you really underscore something that we do at the pod now, which is, you know, getting people to understand that not all studies are created equal and not all data sets are created equal. And that's something that obviously you do every single day is, you know, okay, well, was this study designed appropriately? Did we include the proper um, variables? Did we include the proper controls? Did we have the right demographics included? Did we have the right study populations included? And I think, you know, people forget that just like in any field, there are good scientists and maybe less good scientists. And as a result, the quality of data are going to be impacted by that. And, you know, not all data are created equal. And, you know, a lot of those are going to end up online. And just because you find something online doesn't necessarily mean it's inherently good science. 100%. I'm so glad you said that. And actually, let's take note, I want to talk about how we came up with our name on Bias Science, because I feel like that sort of plays into what, to what you just said. But just one other thing, just to sort of under score how the design of research I mean it's it's an art and it's also a science so I actually I went back and I read my doctoral dissertation and I can't even believe I did this I mean it was just holy moly when you're a doctoral student you really get in the zone there um, and I was interested in the impact of graphic cigarette warning labels on smoking behavior planned behavior for youth as well as adults and so just really really briefly and I, we could talk more about our doctoral research I mean for hours on end um, <laughs> but I designed it was a quasi experimental study um, I was focused on Southeast Asia and I compared um, Thailand to Malaysia and the reason being that Thailand had very stringent tobacco policies they had enacted the cigarette warning labels whereas Malaysia which was you know close in terms of proximity there are also cultural similarities as well as differences, which I could talk about in a moment, um, but Malaysia did not implement the policy. So in this particular study, the countries were the proxies for the policy. And then there were all kinds of interesting statistical things like, you know, um, I had a coefficient that went from zero to one um, to sort of represent the phased implementation of the policy. There are just things that, you know, people who aren't data scientists, they aren't necessarily going to consider. Um, and that's why data science is, is a, you know, a science um, a field. Yeah. <laughs> a study that people can become expert in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, yeah. But Andrea, I think we should talk for a moment, you know, that this is a good segue into our name. So our name, Unbiased Science, we get so much flack <laughs> for our name all the time. Talk about bias science. Exactly. More like bias science and all this. You know, you guys are such hypocrites because you're not showing us all sides of an issue. 
What we do at Unbiased Science, we pour over the available literature and data on a topic, and we're critically appraising the quality of evidence. So we're not going to present you with all of the data that have been published on right. a topic because certain studies have been designed poorly and there are right. you know they're they're not accounting for things like we were talking about you know confounders selection bias you know there are glaring issues with um you know the design or the analysis of the and, and so we're not going to present you with those data because they're they're not valid yes and i think but i think even like even bigger picture there's a misconception that being unbiased means that you are going to give every single opinion or talking point equal weight and attention and that is not at all what it means being unbiased means being impartial meaning that you are giving all of the data equal attention or equal interpretation. And so if there is a piece of data that is flawed, then that's excluded because it's not impartial, right? And so there's this common misconception, oh, well, why didn't you bring on this person who says the vaccines are dangerous? Because that is not consistent with the scientific consensus. And so being unbiased means you do not include outlier data that is not based on credible scientific study and rigor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, just to be perfectly candid, of course, there's no such thing as completely unbiased. And we are human. And as much as we do our very best to leave our personal, you know, opinions and biases and beliefs at the door, of course, it's, you know, challenging to do, but we really do do our very best to do that. But bias in science, and we've done posts on this, I think we even had, did we have an episode on this? I don't know. If we didn't, we should. Um, bias in science has a very specific definition, right? Um, and it's, you know, basically that there are factors that impact the validity and the reliability of a study. You know, can we use this study to generalize and, you know, and, and um, you know, ca- how can we trust the findings of the study? And so there are some, you know, red flags and we take note of those red flags. And so, as Andrea said, those studies are going to carry less weight. So it's not not that we're ignoring it. We're reading all of it, right? We're, we're critically appraising all of it. But when it comes to communicating it to the public, we're going to communicate the best available evidence on a particular topic while yeah. acknowledging that, yes, science, you know, it, it's not finite. It's constantly evolving. Um, that's another thing that I think that folks don't, don't understand. Don't under- well, and that's, and that's, and that's something that we often try and tease apart because, you know, when we cover a lot of these controversial topics, you know, a lot of folks who are sharing less credible science or poorly designed studies, um, those kind of fall into the pseudoscience camp where it gets very entrenched because of this one outlier study or this one study that only utilized animals. And we've talked about the limitations of solely using animal models. Um, and pseudoscience is, is very disparate from science because it is you know, there is this belief that it's finite, that it's fixed, that it's the single interpretation. It does not change with emerging evidence. And that is a big distinction um, between science and pseudoscience. And of course, when we talk about these studies, you know, for example, we talked about in our artificial sweetener episode, you know, these studies that are saying and these studies that are being misinterpreted and claiming that, you know, artificial sweeteners like aspartame cause cancer, 
that's not necessarily true because what they're doing is they're taking an animal, which does not have the same physiology or metabolic processes, and it does not metabolize substances in the same way that humans do. But then they're also feeding them a dose that is a thousand times higher than what a human or even an animal would encounter in the real world in a controlled laboratory situation. And if you give some something, you know, a thousand times a dose of anything, you probably will see harmful effects because, of course, as we talk about ad nauseum, the dose makes the poison. And so, you know, you have to understand those caveats when you're looking at scientific evidence. And that's something that scientists, professional scientists have been trained to do. You know, and, and we, we sometimes get accused of weaponizing our credentials, but really, we are expert in, you know, I'm expert in data science and in the critical appraisal of study design and analytics. Andrea, you are an immunologist and microbiologist with knowledge about our immune system and our body and, you know, all of the things that are over my head. Um, and so we are an authority when, when it comes to these matters. But that doesn't mean that, that we think we're superior to anyone, you know, we're not better than anyone. It's just when it comes to these specific topics, we are going to assert ourselves because we studied for many years, we trained for many years, and we work for many years to be able to weigh in on these matters. And, you know, I, I, we, we talk a lot and about how one of the reasons why we sort of steered away from academia is there is, you know, an ivory tower. And I think sometimes academics can fall into this trap of, you know, coming across as a bit condescending or, you know, frankly, holier than thou. And I think that that is really problematic when it comes to science communication. Um, so, uh, you know, it, I think our goal with Unbiased Science, and Andrea, you know, obviously, please weigh in here, is to help, you know, use our skill set to help, you know, educate the public on these matters, help people become better informed consumers of health and science information, but also coming from a place of understanding confusion. You know, we're dealing, we're, we're up against clickbait headlines and fear-mongering and very clever marketing tactics that are directly influencing people. So we understand why some people will fall prey to things like the carnivore diet or thinking that artificial sweeteners are, you know, are the devil and are, de you know, causing cancer and all these things. If you just Google one of these phrases, you're going to come across media headlines that are, you know, exaggerating risks and misinterpreting data. And, you know, and so that's kind of, you know, the void we're trying to fill is, you know, obviously media outlets are making money by clicks and, you know, companies are selling a product. And so if they're making claims about the health benefits of their product versus the harms of another product, they obviously have a conflict of interest and a, and a motive there. And so we're just, you know, we're trying to help people think a little bit more about, you know, not necessarily jumping to these really, really like outlandish conclusions, um, you know, and, and, you know, this is our expertise, you know, I'm never going to try and tell somebody how to install a roof because I don't know the first thing about it. And, you know, that's why I let those experts handle those topics. Um, exactly. You know, so, so, you know, it's, it's very disheartening that there seems to be like a lack of respect for expertise in this particular field, but like a respect for expertise in a lot of other unrelated fields. But, you know, we hope to kind of maybe reinvigorate that a little bit. And and I think that that kind of segues into, you know, this other kind of topic that we've discussed a lot. And, and this is kind of this, I don't know, this very 
displaced idea that scientists only belong in academia. And if you exist in a different career route, then somehow you're selling out and there's not a place for you. And in reality, like as we've already talked about, there are tons of different types of scientists, not just beyond data science and immunology, microbiology, I mean, geologists, archaeologists, I mean, every single field of investigating a observable phenomenon is probably going to require a scientist in some capacity, right? Physicists and chemists and toxicologists and epidemiologists, which are not infectious disease specialists, they study the distribution and trends of, of, of disease, which could be infectious disease or chronic disease or, you know, even things like gun violence. But there is a need and there is, you know, a requirement to have scientists in really every field, right? Whether that is industry. And as I mentioned, I work in biotechnology, but there are also commercial commercial product industries, right? Making sure that commercial products are safe and effective and healthy. And, you know, we we talked about that and we talked about menstrual hygiene and menstrual health products. You know, obviously there's governmental scientists and those could be those who are actually conducting research at governmental institutions like NIH or CDC, but it could also be health policy folks, could be people who are in the political landscape within government. Healthcare, you know, we have scientists who are working in medical, you know, settings, um, but also things like journalists, journalism and uh, the criminal justice system. There's this weird trend where, you know, many media outlets are, are unreceptive or resistant to bringing in scientific experts to help fact check or even help create content um, or expecting them to do it for free. Um, but, but we need scientists involved in these things to fact check because otherwise you get these sensationalized headlines, misinterpreting of data or again, being biased and, you know, exaggerating the harms or, or giving, you know, undue attention to something that is not based on science. I am so glad that you said this. I remember when I decided to make the switch um, and become a consultant and then ultimately start my own business, I shared this with a mentor of mine and she was so, she said, I'm so disappointed to hear this. And it was sort of this idea that I'm selling out by, you know, by leaving academia and not pursuing a, uh, you know, a, a university a, a appointment or position. And, you know, exactly as Andrea said, we should be encouraging scientists to branch out, you know, and, and to enter. We need scientists, of course, at, you know, in government positions and in industry positions, because we need to hold products, you know, um, to a high standard and, and make sure that we're rigorously and properly assessing safety and efficacy and effectiveness and all that good stuff. And it takes scientific rigor and scientific training to do that. Um, you know, we go to school for, we went to school for many, many years. Years, we incurred a whole lot of debt. And, you know, when we graduate, of course, you know, money and, and, and salary is a consideration when we're selecting a career, just to be perfectly transparent, as we're sure it is for for folks who are watching this and listening to this right now. And you, and you have to make a living, right? You have to make a living. And I don't know, I don't get why people think like scientists should be working for free because it's a career. You have to make a living. If you're a scientist, it's your job. You know? we have mortgages, we have bills to pay, money doesn't grow on trees. And then, you know, this blanket vilification of industry and big pharma. Do you, I mean, I wish people understood everything is an industry, everything 
is for profit. The wellness industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Homeopathy, naturopathy, naturopathy. And those people are not bringing scientists in to help develop their products. They're just making products and selling them without any scientific rigor. Right. There's no oversight. There's no regulation. And so I I just, it's very, very frustrating to those of us who are scientists. Um, And just to be candid, you know, my, my, um, my consultancy, we do occasionally, you know, get hired by, by industry clients. And I think it's fantastic. We're never told what to say or what the data need to show. Or there's this idea that everyone's being bought to say something. Never in a million years. I entered science, you know, because I am interested in the pursuit of knowledge and I, I can't be bought. My integrity is of the utmost importance to me. Never in my entire career have I ever allowed anyone to buy findings or to tell me what to say. I think there's also this conflation of like scientists and also like an organization at large, you know, like the CEO or the stakeholders of a publicly traded company are not one in the same with scientists. You know, I think we need to understand that scientists are, we're not getting as rich as most people We're you know, we're, we're middle of the middle of the income hierarchy, you know, certainly much less than many medical specialties, um, I would, I would say. So, you know, people who often go into science are doing this because they really do have a legitimate interest and they want to kind of help the good of all society. And I think we need to stop conflating that, but also understand that, you know, scientists are, if you only live in academia, you know, academia is kind of where findings begin, but in order to make them reality, they have to move into industry in whatever capacity that happens to be. Right. And there, there needs to be an interplay, you know, collaboration with the academics and then applying that knowledge to real world. Right. Because, you know, we say everything we're doing, we're, we're interacting with science in Everything, you know, I'm picking up a glass, the water that I'm drinking, you know, every single thing, the, the products I apply to my face, the shampoo that I get, every single thing is science. And, you know, every we're, we're a culture that is understandably and rightfully obsessed with, you know, safety and, you know, are things working well? We need scientists to be able to measure and, you know, uh, provide oversight and regulate and, and, you know, study these things. So I think, needless to say, I'm, I'm sure it's coming through in this this episode and this is sort of cathartic I think you know that we're able to express this frustration like there's just this shame and this bias that if you're in industry you're you're somehow a sellout and also like you know other fields that a lot of people don't even think about like talk about criminal justice system right who would be investigating crime scenes or you know seeing if evidence matched to a given suspect who perpetrated a crime if there were not forensic scientists right you know there are molecular biologists who are doing you know dna analysis there are other folks who are maybe you know geologist specialists who are looking at maybe you know um foot tread or wear patterns and you know shoe prints or things like i mean all of those things come back to science so like literally every field that exists uh, is is informed by science in some way. And I know I talked about roofers before. I mean, even if you talk about raw materials used for roofing, you have to use science to inform that, you know, are your materials going to be waterproof? Are they going to withstand mold? Are they going to be structurally sound? I mean, this is all science. Yeah. You know, Andrea, just one one final thing before I think we start to wrap up here is I just want to address that we often do say follow the money. And you do need to be mindful of who's getting paid and funding and things. 
things like that. Because we say, you know, there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there who are, you know, peddling things like supplements and, you know, whatever these, you know, these products that don't have any science behind them. And that's sort of, it's, it's, it's a, a, clearly a separate thing. And when there is, you know, industry funded research, that is always disclosed. There is so much transparency. And oh my gosh, if you are doing industry funded research, the, the, the hoops that you have to jump through to prove that there's no, you know, that you're not, um, you know, biased, you know, that you're doing your best to, min- to minimize bias in any way. My goodness, it I, I, I just read something. It's something like it takes 10 times longer to publish industry funded research than, you know, academic or whatever it is. Um, and so, yes, it is important to understand funding. And we're not saying that, you know, bias doesn't exist. But there is a distinction, right, between this selling of, of products that, you know, have no regulation, no oversight, no evidence or data to support them versus industry-supported research, which is absolutely necessary and a completely different thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, that- that's not to say that there aren't bad apples in every field, right? We've talked about some specific examples of, you know, individuals with PhDs in science fields or even, you know, medical degrees that have, you know, sold out and are promoting products or, you know, supplements or books or dietary patterns or workshops or whatever the case happens to be for a personal profit and with a conflict of interest. And so, yes, there are always exceptions to the rule. And there are always people who step outside of their scope to, you know, make money personally. And that's going to be true in every single field that there is. But, you know, generally speaking, you know, if someone is a scientist by training, they're going to have the ability to kind of sift through what's real and what's not um, to a higher degree. All right, Andrea, I think we covered a lot of ground. Obviously, there's a lot more we could say, and maybe we will have more episodes sort of on this topic, but take us home. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this little, I don't know, fireside chat about science and scientists and the diversity of of that and the need for that in every single field. If you want more unbiased science, please consider supporting us through our Substack subscription. It's $5 a month. We do occasionally post extended content there periodically, but the biggest thing is that you're going to be supporting our efforts. You get a direct line to Jess and myself through our private Facebook group, and you can check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack. Next episode, we're going to take on a little bit of a fun topic. Um, We're going to be discussing The Last of Us. If you haven't tuned into the show, you should. Um, And we're going to talk about the science behind it and the feasibility behind it. Note, there will be spoilers. So if you have not watched the finale, make sure to tune in before you tune into the pod. Um, We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID, RSV, influenza, and all sorts of other science and health topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at UnbiasedSciPod. In addition, we are now recording video for all of our podcast episodes, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find it by searching Unbiased Science. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. I am a scientist. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist.